125,323. The number of vehicles licensed by the New York City Taxi and Limousine Commission in New York City in 2018. This includes 13,587 yellow cabs and more than 107,000 for hire vehicles, your Ubers, Lyfts, but also the car service vehicles used by businesses and your grandmother. The number of yellow cabs has remained steady because the number of medallions is capped. However, in two years, the number of for hire vehicles grew 59%. While not all licensed vehicles are making active trips, data from the TLC show that daily trips by for hire vehicles began to surpass those made by yellow cabs in 2017 and now comprise the majority of trips. This explosive growth has posed many challenges, and our special guest was at the forefront of thinking about how to analyze and tackle the problems. Hail a cab or schedule a trip and listen to this episode with former TLC Commissioner Mira Zoshi. Welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. I'm Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. I'm Maria Dulles from the CBC. Thanks so much for joining us. We're excited about today's conversation. Another good episode here on the docket. Just in case you've missed anything recently, we've had some really good discussions. You should find those at What's the Data Point wherever you get your podcasts, or you can find them at the Gotham Gazette or Citizens Budget Commission websites. We recently talked about the mayor's executive budget. We've had episodes with Dr. Mitchell Katz of Health and Hospitals, the adopted state budget. We've talked with former Deputy Mayor Alicia Glenn, Department of Transportation Commissioner Polly Trottenberg. Lots of great guests, lots of great episodes, and we're excited about today's conversation. Certainly, as Maria outlined, we are talking with Mira Zoshi, the former head of the New York City Taxi and Limousine Commission and now a visiting scholar at NYU Wagner. Do I have that right? Yes, you do. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, so before we dig into all the TLC stuff, just a little bit about sort of who you are and, and what you did before coming to TLC. Uh, before coming to the TLC, I was a city employee. I joined the city in 2002 coming from a private practice. I graduated law school, and the firm that I was at did uh, white-collar criminal defense work. Uh, I joined the Department of Investigation, and there I was in charge of the Inspector General's Office for the Department of Correction. So I spent six years investigating corruption on Rikers Island, which is um, better than TV. You don't need to watch TV when you have that job. (laughs) And then after DOC and DOI, I went to the Civilian Complaint Review Board, where I spent two to three years um, running the agency that investigates uh, police misconduct. And generally, that surrounds complaints around stop and frisk. At a time when stop and frisk was incredibly volatile, there were several major lawsuits. Um, and there was a lot of progress we made at that time in terms of making sure there were civilian prosecutors in the police courtroom and doing some retraining with NYPD. After that, I became the general counsel of the Taxi and Limousine Commission. And as the mayor's, you know, the mayor's changed, I presumed that you know I should change too. So I was very surprised when the de Blasio administration contacted me and asked me if I'd interested you know, be interested in being chair, a job I knew a lot about, so I can't blame anyone <laughs> for, you, you know, not knowing what I was getting into because I did. Mm-hmm. And so you just spent, what, roughly five or so years as chair of the of the Taxi and Limousine Commission? Yes. So you've had some weighty jobs here in city government. 
Yes. <laughs> Time for a break. <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting not being a city employee. So for those who are unfamiliar with the Taxi and Limousine Commission, what's your sort of brief explanation to people who say, okay, I get that taxis are regulated by the city, but what is the TLC? So the TLC sets the ground rules for every transportation where you're paying a driver to take you from one place to another. That can take a lot of different forms. And I think in New York City, we kind of welcome different forms. So we have yellow taxis, we have green taxis, we have luxury limousines, we have your local car service, your commuter van, your paratransit. And um, now you see in the last four or five years, the app services, which are proliferating. Um, So Anytime you're paying a driver to take you from one place to another in a vehicle, that has to be licensed by the New York City Taxi and Limousine Commission, and the commission goes through the different challenges that occur um, in terms of accountability, safety, access, and makes and develops policy and rules about how those how those industries are going to function. So as you can imagine, as the growth over the past few years has really changed the business model and people's ability to get around, it's raised incredible questions about what regulations should apply to these new forms of business. So I think prior to your tenure, one might have been forgiven for thinking of TLC as a sleepy little agency. Um, And you sort of came in right at this moment where this for hire vehicle industry was just starting to really ramp up and then explode. Um, And one of the first things you did, I think, is analyze some new requirements to get the data needed to really move policy on this front. Talk a little bit about what you did and how you what kind of data you looked at to start to put some parameters around around defining the problems and then tackling them. In New York City, we have um, a good history of data-driven policy, and we've had administrations that very much support that. So the taxis in 1997... No, I'm sorry, in 2007, um, started to have mandated technology in them that had GPS. So the city got very used to building policy around knowing how taxis move around in the core of Manhattan. DOT uses it to understand what traffic speeds look like, and the agency TLC uses it to make policy around driver protection um, and, and the like. So As you see the shift in passenger base going to the app-based services, the same kind of requirements and attention needs to be there. So using that history, we required the app-based services to give us um, all – we did it in different parts, but by the time four years was over, it's pick up, drop off, the time that the driver logs on, the time the driver logs off, the time that a customer requests a ride, the time that the car arrives, whether it's accessible or not what the driver's getting paid, what the passenger's paying. And all of these help inform policy, whether it be around Vision Zero policy, limiting the number of hours a driver can drive, around driver pay protection, making sure that drivers are making at least a minimum wage. Um, and I think it's been incredible in, in, in a lot of ways, you know, First and foremost, it makes sense, right? Like, we, there's a, this is an industry where there's an incredible amount of money and an incredible amount of lobbying. So it has a horrible history of making decisions based on lobbying. And when you're making the decisions based on data in, in an industry where as much money is at stake as 
here, it's really important that you have a fact base. Um, second, it's also an industry that's very litigious, so you're going to get sued on everything, and so you need you you can't afford to make policy unless you're done your due diligence. It's just it's going to be upended in the court, so you have to have that data. Um, and but, you have a very tricky sort of per, uh, you know situation with these large medallion owners, then the sort of single medallion owners, then you have the big for hire vehicle companies, and then you have all these drivers who are toiling away. I mean, we've all known forever that yellow taxi drivers, you know, that's a very tough lifestyle to, to drive all day like that and be picking up and dropping off. Then you introduce, you know, it's very complicated on the sort of personnel side and the and the ownership side right it's a very complicated overall picture yeah this you know stakeholders as they call mm -hmm. like the people interested right. is a, like it's a huge span you know you have a very um large immigrant population not not making a lot of money doing the driving and some very wealthy companies or very wealthy industries um individuals that are you know running the businesses and so they all sort of have a loud voice, um, some louder than others. Um, and so it really is important to know exactly what's going on. But th one of the parts I like the best about it is you're able to tell the story. And you're able to make uh, some of this information available to the public because the public deserves to know what is going on in transportation. And when you're moving a million people a day, it's an important part of the transportation network. And I think people do deserve that kind of information. So the the it was startling to me looking back at this data in preparation for this conversation as Maria outlined some of this that if you combine the yellow and the green cabs you have somewhere around 17,000 and then you have well over 100,000 of the for hire vehicles is that a crazy imbalance or I mean how do you sort of think about the landscape right now you know forget sort of capping and regulating and such but how do you think about the the landscape right now of the yellows, the greens, and the four-hour vehicles? Um, I think crazy imbalance is a good way to mm -hmm. characterize it. Uh, what you have is a, there was an incredible and still, you know, not so much now because of the cap, but over the course of three and a half to four years, an incredible push to encourage people, and people wanted to, um, come into this industry to drive, and they also bought cars or leased cars to come in. So every month, about 3,000 new drivers are coming in, and about 2,000 new vehicles are coming in. And there's, you know, the pie is growing. There's a lot more outer borough trips than there were, but it's not infinite. So the imbalance comes into play when you see all of these cars, but they're not all occupied. And people are buying them or they're leasing them primarily to get into this business. It's not like they are also have a lot of errands they want to do with the cars or they're, you know, they're doing it to, to be in the for hire business, but they're sitting around empty. So about 40% of every hour, the app drivers that are on the road don't have passengers. And so really, um, the driver pay rules try to address that imbalance in um, in a way that that works off of sort of incentives and penalties. You're going to have to pay more if you can't keep your drivers busy. Um, and I think the effect of that is what you see happened in April, where both Uber and Lyft said, okay, we won't take on any more new drivers. For the existing drivers, this was great news because they were feeling the pain of the oversaturation. And this, I think, is a good example of where regulation and the market kind of work together. The Regulation is aimed at the problem, the empty cars, the lack of money, and then the reaction came from the companies because they stopped bringing on new drivers. 
Well, it's sort of very interesting because the cap initially was proposed by Mayor de Blasio early on in his tenure and was flatly rejected. And I think there was sort of popular outcry about this. And yet, if we sort of look back in our history, right, medallions were instituted and capped for this, the kind, the same kind of reasons we're talking about and discussing now. And we've accepted that for a long time. And yet it was very controversial to think about putting limits on, on these four higher vehicles because of their popularity, but they were ultimately approved mm -hmm. um, later on. There was a little bit of controversy about how to calculate and think about a minimum wa uh, wage for the drivers. How did you approach thinking about that and coming to the sort of right mechanism to determine that? Um, well, uh, they're primarily independent contractors. So the thought was, you know, we don't have the jurisdiction to, you know, require a, an hourly wage, um, nor does it kind of work because of the flexibility that they have in their work schedule. What you can look at is how much are they making per minute and how much are they making per mile. And what happened, we really sort of focused in on three components. One, how are they getting their expenses covered? Because expenses are a huge um, part of the economic equation for a driver, and it is what's bringing down a lot of their earnings. Because if their earnings are cut, their expenses stay the same. So they have to have some way to understand how to compensate for the expenses. So we decided that the mile should sort of be based on the federal reimbursement rate modified for this market. But what you get paid per mile, it should cover your costs of your car, <clears throat> your gas, your maintenance, all the things that you need to do your job. The minute rate should be where you earn your money. And that's what's pegged to if you're active about 60% of an hour with a passenger, those minutes should be X amount per minute, and that'll equal out to about the minimum wage. We had to add in another factor because if it's an attractive rate, then more and more drivers come in, it dilutes the pool, and no one driver is whole. They're, they're all sort of making a little bit maybe a little bit more on those little bits, but those little bits are still little bits. Um, so we put in this utilization factor, which is the rate that you pay as a company per minute and mile will go up if you cannot keep your drivers busy. Um, and if you're able to keep your drivers very busy, you'll get the incentive of being able to pay a little bit less. But even under the little bit less, because your drivers are busy, they will be making more money overall. Um, and that seems to have, think, have had, a, a, like I mentioned, an effect on closing the, closing the pool, which is really what we wanted to get at and something that we didn't feel comfortable, didn't think it was appropriate to do it through, a, through law. Um, That's a lot of of tinkering and, and aspects of the equation. Was your number one priority there the drivers and their livelihoods? Was it congestion? How did you weigh those two? Um, it was certainly drivers and their livelihood, and also how do drivers understand? Because uh, do, how do, do drivers understand how this is working? So one of the big controversies we had with the company that became the, the source of litigation is, should this be compliance per trip? Or can we just aggregate all of this? And at the end of the week, if the driver hasn't earned enough, we'll top them up. Um, and from a driver's perspective, that's very difficult to understand. If I've got an, an assurance that I'm going to get paid this per minute per mile, I want to get paid it on every trip. And you lose a lot unless you're giving people sort of the protection that the law, you know, purports to provide. So um, 
ultimately the Supreme Court last week ruled that the per-trip compliance was absolutely within the, the jurisdiction of the agency and appropriate. Um, and so that's the kind of aspect of thinking through this rule where we really wanted to think through it. Although it's complicated, how do we make sure it works for drivers and drivers can understand how they're protected? And that's the state Supreme Court. Yeah, the state Supreme <laughs> yeah. Court. Um, the congestion, sure for, for there, you know, there may be a yeah. uh, there may be a byproduct, which is utilization rates force people to use cars more efficiently. Um, but that's a secondary, you know, great extra benefit of this policy. But it wasn't the primary purpose of the policy. When you saw that announcement that Uber and Lyft had stopped taking on new drivers celebrate did you you know was that sort of a, a really important moment for you that okay this is really working this is good does that is it have a bittersweet element for you i think overall i felt very good about it um because this you know we have public commission meetings every month and some of them last hours six seven hours um, when we have them about driver pay we have hundreds and hundreds of drivers come in and this is a group that traditionally has not come to commission meetings. They haven't shown up. They haven't voiced their displeasure with um, their working conditions in the manner that they have over the last two years. Combine that with the suicides of you know that that have happened in all sectors. Um, and so the main concern from drivers is if we're constantly competing and with new drivers coming in, 3,000, we will never be able to get ahead. So I think this is a huge step in the right direction. And has there been any sense, you know, since these caps have been implemented? I mean, one of the things that I always found compelling as a case for these four hire vehicles is that they do serve areas that have not been served well by yellow taxis, um, mostly in the outer boroughs. So is there a sense that services in these areas, I mean, does the formula now change the economics about where it pays for drivers to be cruising around, making their trips? Um, has it had an impact on the outer boroughs that we're sort of depending on these more so than, than say, Manhattan? Right. You're exactly right. That's where I think the big um, benefit to the city has been in terms of mobility has been in the outer boroughs, and that's where the growth has been, you know, percentage-wise, the greatest. Uh, there, the concern when the cap legislation was passed was that exact concern. So as a result, we monitor that and put, or the TLC monitors that and puts out a report every quarter um, about growth of ridership in the core, in the inner ring, and then in the outer boroughs. Um, and the latest report just came out showing that there's con there is still continuous growth quarter over quarter. And in the outer boroughs, there's about 60,000 more rides every day in if you compare the most recent quarter to that same quarter in 2017. So year over year, there's still growth. Um, and I think that points out that there is there is this built-in excess in the business model. You know, if you're going to get a car in a minute or two minutes, a lot of other people have to be sitting around waiting empty, not earning money. Um, and so that excess now, I think, is probably being used up to provide the additional rides since you don't have new drivers. And on, along those same lines, the green taxis. How do you capture the sort of status of the green taxi program? It, has the for-hire vehicle industry sort of... A, 
obliterate obliterated the need you know has it has it negated this the idea of this program or how do you capture that yeah this is um you know this one's close to home i was general counsel when we you know did the green taxi um, law with the state and you know worked on the litigation and we ultimately prevailed and it was you know a great day where everybody you know announced that there were green taxis on the street. And for the first year or two, it was gangbusters. Mm -hmm. Um, People really enjoyed it. But they were probably, you know, too late, right? Because the app services have provided the outer borough service in a way that's very efficient and very customer friendly and and very easy to use. The transparency is great. You know when your car's coming. You can let other people know when you're going to arrive. Um, and so the green taxis have really struggled. Ridership's gone down. Um, and what you find now is they're figuring out how to work themselves into other existing modes. So some are on the app services. So if you call an Uber X, you might get a green taxi. And that's going to be treated just like a for hire. Um, but more interestingly, and I think with a broader benefit to the city, is a partnership with the MTA on Accessoride. So a lot of the green taxis are wheelchair accessible as well as yellow taxis through one of the app, you know, both of the app companies that work in those taxis. We worked with the MTA closely to get them to start utilizing those cars. Um, There's a cost savings, and customers really like it. They're not getting in this sort of white wagon anymore. They're getting in something that looks more like what everybody else is getting in. And so now there's about, you know, few thousand, I think almost 5,000 accessoride trips a day happening through green taxis, and that has become an income lifeline um, for the green taxi service. Speaking of income lifeline, what is to be done about the taxi medallion situation? You mentioned driver suicides that has crossed over from yellow cabs to for hire vehicle drivers, um, folks seemingly in real just despair about their livelihoods and their ability to either pay off their debt or make a living for their themselves, their families. Um, those are obviously the most extreme cases, and there's many others who, who are struggling with these issues financially. Um, what is to be done about the taxi medallion situation? Uh, I've seen, I think you say that you don't believe in a bailout. Um, what do you think should happen? The, the taxis, when they're on the road, um, make money, right? The problem stems from the loan. So many of these taxi medallions have outsized loans attached to them. They, you know, probably were outsized when they were given to them um, because the price was so inflated. Right, you know, and by, by inflated, we mean almost a million dollars. Yeah, almost. well, 1.3 was right. the high in 2013. So if you look at sort of the housing crisis when banks were very easy about giving money and the prices kept going up and everybody was happy and nobody thought twice about it, that happening, mm-hmm. you know, similarly happened mm-hmm. in the medallion market. I mean, there's very little due diligence to get a loan, a $700,000, $800,000 loan for a medallion. You could get that in 20 minutes. Um, so with those kind of lending practices, now that the down, you know, business is down, um, if your loan matched your revenue, if your loan had been given in accordance to how much you could actually earn, you might not be in a bad situation. But because it's so mismatched, you're in a horrible situation. Some banks have taken... Um, And and the reason I've sort of said, you know, bailout, I I don't know that you want to bail out the banks. I mean, they've made a lot of money off of these loans. They've made a lot of money off of refinancing. And I don't know that the the individual owner is better off 
um, because they still may, you know, the amount of money is huge, and they still may owe the, a tremendous amount of money to the banks. But the banks know that these are not good loans anymore, but they also know that these are good borrowers in that they will continue to work, they will continue to pay if the loan is right-sized. They're going to have to write them down anyway, so some banks are going ahead and writing them down, resizing them to $200,000, $150,000, around where what they're selling for now, because they have to take the loss, and they might as well keep the borrower. Other banks are not. And banks that have been taken over by federal regulators may not have that leeway. But I really sort of push for that to be a much better solution. Um, you know, we don't have that. The city doesn't have There's that no kind of authority yeah. other than to convene bankers and to talk about the positive, you know, impact of this kind of uh, refinancing that makes sense for everybody. It's not as though the bank's going to get that money back. They're just not going to. So... Um, at least have a, a good live loan at the right price than, than have somebody who's out of work and the bank with the loss. The part of the deal that authorized the, the creation of the green cabs also authorized the city to sell more green cab medallions, and that was, I think, a fewer or so, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, about um, 300. Right, and then um, there was money in the financial plan, almost a billion dollars to sell more over time, and that money, you know, as the market started to change, that money was pushed out and I don't think is in there anymore. Are there any plans to proceed with sales? Obviously, they will not be as lucrative as when the market was at a high, but... Um, um, you know, I can't speak to this budget cycle um, not uh, not part of the city anymore but I think the thought is uh, this is probably not a great time to sell medallions there is a lot of interest in hedge funds that have come in and bought medallion portfolios and bought loan portfolios and transactions are actually at an all-time high there's more medallion transactions happening every month than there's ever been um, in I think in the last decade or so so there is a lot of movement um, I worked with council to sort of get some of the restrictions on transfers lifted so that there would be a, the ability to have more movement in the market. Um, and so that's where you see the buying and selling. So I'm not so sure what would be added if you added more new medallions into that mix, since there is quite a few medallions changing hands already. And w was that a oversight by city administration, by TLC, when the bubble was growing so big of the tax medallions? If you could go back, would you do something differently around that? You know, it's interesting because, um, you know, banks can make their own decisions on how they want to lend. Um, it, what, what I find difficult about the situation is the TLC did put up information about what medallion prices are what rev, what the fare box is, what the trip volume is, whether it's growing or whether it's not. And when I first got to the TLC in 2011, I couldn't understand the price of the medallions because there's a lease cap. There's only so much an owner can make from a medallion. So I was like, okay, I'm not a banker, but I don't understand this. Um, and I think, you know, the, the, the sort of industry and the city, because things were profitable, just sort of lived in this, like, it's, I guess it's working. The market value yeah, it's, seems it's the to markets, be. The market's, mm -hmm. you know, doing what it's doing. Um, and, you know, that, that happens in different 
in forms. You know, now we have IPOs on large app companies. Are they worth what they're worth? We're, we're going to find out, you know. So there is speculation throughout transportation. Um, it is not an industry that is like an exact cost and revenue. Um, there's lots of subsidy. And so I think this was, uh, you know, a prime example of also probably you know, lenient banking practices that we see affected borrowers in other industries like the real estate. And that sort of would have coincided a little bit if we're if we're sort of looking back over the last bunch of years with this effort to cap the four hire vehicles in 2015, which mm-hmm. as Maria said before, didn't happen. The mayor was behind it. You were on board and and they wound up not having the will in the city council to do it. Uber put forward a huge pushback. Um, and then eventually that cap, people realized, many people have admitted they, they felt they made a mistake, mm-hmm. uh, including the current city council speaker who said that. Um, do you see that as a huge inflection point if, you know, of, 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 of a real missed opportunity to, to have corrected the market much earlier? Yeah, I mean, I always say, I think, you know, as an agency and as leading the TLC, I felt like we were on the front line. We were seeing all of these drivers come in. We were seeing the kinds of leases they were getting involved in, the amount of, you know, four or $500 a week. And it, it's, again, it's like it didn't seem to make sense. Where was, where was this all going to end up? Um, and so I think, you know, it would have been a, a lot easier on drivers if they had had some kind of protection earlier. Um, whether that's a cap or whether that's pay protection. Um, but it's certainly, you know, it, it, there is a lag between when the people that are sort of on the ground seeing the industry grow and sort of the public awareness of it, um, especially because, as you mentioned, this is a, a good service, a popular service filling a void, and it's hard to walk away from that when what you're being told is there's no way to have it, bo- have it both ways. You can't actually have congestion-fighting measures and have this service. We know today that, yes, you can, through smart policy, achieve both of those, but if you're being told that's impossible, um, there's a little reluctance for people to believe that it's a necessary step. You also don't have sort of the driver support that I think the companies had in 2015. So I think speaking of congestion, you know, they passed the congestion pricing plan this year, but, you know, some would say the first baby step on that path was last year they implemented a congestion fee on taxi cabs and on four hire vehicles. Um, what you know? What do you see as the right way to kind of marry that or integrate it into the congestion pricing plan? I think we have said there's rationale to exempt that or sort of tinker with the fee for these vehicles. How, mm-hmm. You know, but given that there's all this data being collected, I think there's really a lot of opportunity for something very sophisticated in terms of you know how you charge vehicles when they're cruising around and don't necessarily have passengers making active trips. You know, how, how would you do it if you could? Yeah, so, I mean, it's timely also because the CAP legislation authorized the TLC and DOT to conduct a study um, and then come up with a, with a congestion-fighting framework for, for these vehicles. Um, and so with the utilization information that the agency has, um, as well as additional sort of breadcrumb and route information that the agency is getting, um, there is no reason why you can't have a very smart policy that doesn't have hard caps but looks instead at use and makes sure that there's efficient use. Um, So, you know, I think one thing is having the ability to um, have variability. So there's times when, you know, we got a complaint when the the 
congestion price on the FHVs and taxis where it first went in place, a customer called up and he goes, it, well, he, he left it on the message machine, you know, it's three o'clock in the morning and I'm paying a congestion fee and there's nobody on the road. <laughs> why am I paying this? It's like, right. well, there you go. That's why right. it's nice to have some variability because you don't need to pay that fee if there's nobody else on the road. But when there are lots of people on the road, maybe the fee should be twice as much. Mm-hmm. Um, and because the city changes as population changes and people decide they want to live in different neighborhoods, you need the ability to change the boundaries of, a, of the congestion ring. Um, and with the with the data, you can do all of that. So the key is that whatever the formula be, that there be the ability to, to change it when you need to for achieving um, traffic, you know, the best traffic po- uh, policy you can have. Um, and second, you can, you know, I, I would think there's ways either using utilization or pricing as like Sao Paulo does, they price by the kilometer or price by time. All of those are options. Um, it's really just to the logistics of which works the best and which is the easiest for the city to manage. But any one of those would, would really be great headway and a great model, I think, for the rest of the country who's looking at New York City to say, hmm, should we dip our toes in this water? Can it be done? Um, and so these are, these are examples. And this is where we're going to see over the next couple of years the new state congestion pricing law, the details are going to be figured out while the city gets new data on how the for her vehicle cap has worked out, plus the driver pay and how that's interacted with things. And everybody should hope that a lot of that data gets pulled together and people are talking to each other. And as you said, they're making decisions based on that data and traffic and congestion goals and even goals based on the drivers, not necessarily goals strictly based on the revenue. Yeah, I mean, revenue is a byproduct <laughs> of this. Um, well, and revenue re- has... revenue goal is stated in the legislation. Well, that's yeah, what I'm yeah. getting one at, is that the, the congestion know, pricing It's actually law. one of the few specifications exactly. in the yeah. legislation. And the, yeah, and you know, the revenue is necessary. That's sure. reality. You right. need money to fund the MTA. That's that's something nobody can walk away from. And these are cars that are using our infrastructure, and they should pay back into the system. Um, and so I think the revenue is an – it's not only vital because you need the revenue, but it's also a mechanism to control because sure. you you can make things cost a lot more and people won't use them. And if they're inefficient ways to get around, that's a good thing um, for the city. So, you know, it's always going to be a balance because the reality is this is you know not just driven by the – the problem on the street. It's driven by this the need for these companies to pay their fair share. Um, so the best you can hope for is that the way you collect the revenue is has that same variability and that same flexibility. So it's really being used in a way that's most focused on getting to the goal of reducing congestion. So in our last couple minutes here with Mira Zoshi, the former uh, chair of the New York City Taxi and Limousine Commission, now a visiting scholar at the NYU Wagner School, Last couple questions, I think. Did you want to jump in with something? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, the driver pay rules that you put into place have, I think, from the city's perspective, and I guess from your perspective, since you're mm-hmm. now have left the city, but have been working out well so far, from what you can tell. Yes, and recently, I think the agency calculated, you know, how much additional money drivers were making since the rules went into place in February, and I was a little. Um, 
shocked by the, the number, but it's $152 million. And so that's money that goes back into drivers' pockets, but it's also money that goes back into the local economy because most drivers live and work in the city. They patronize our restaurants. They use all, you know, city city infrastructure. Um, and so that's an important win, I think, not just for drivers, but for the city. Um, and again, I think and hope that it's an example for other cities throughout the country to see that there is a way you can balance this. You can have the service. Your you know, passengers can have more mobility, but it doesn't have to necessarily be at the expense of the drivers. And there is a way to balance it. It will take a little bit of uncomfortability, but you can get there. When you look at that and you look at the Uber and Lyft losses that they're... Um reporting and they're going public. Do you have any pause about sort of um, over-regulating this industry and these and these companies struggling? Um, or do you, do you think they're in big trouble? Are you going to attribute me to their <laughs> no. losses? I think it's a drop in the bucket. Not at all. Not at all. No, I, obviously I'm 150, <laughs> no, the, the money you, you, you mentioned. But I... I guess I'm, I'm. Or it could be an investment in the people that are providing sure. their service, which means they'll be there and be working for them and more reliable and more long long term um, workers. But yes, okay, I. Okay, so so let's take. I, no, I appreciate that pushback. So just broadly speaking, though, are these companies? gonna make it uh, you know what's your perspective on on where they're heading yeah I I you know I think make it is a different um, it's a different definition now so it's not profit it's about market share so make it could be how many new users you're bringing in whether or not you're losing money and if you're bringing in lots of new users that ultimately means that even though you're losing money for whatever how many years Amazon lost money, at some point you'll arrive at the finish line and you'll be the one with all of the users. And I think in that sense, um, they are bringing on a lot of new users. So there, there is a path forward for them um, through either their traditional car service, scooters, bikes, you know, eating delivery services. Okay. So in that sense they're they're working uh, what we don't know is how long that model lasts and what happens to us as consumers when you know there are just large one or two large companies providing lots of services what happens to the prices for us last question for me um was there anything that when you were leading TLC you didn't get to that you want to see the commission get to in the next couple of years uh, one thing in thinking about, and since I've left the TLC, talking to a lot of other cities, um, and, and this is something I'm not so sure the agency would ever have the bandwidth to do. I do wish we had, I had been more aware of it. Um, but outside of New York City, the regulation framework for this industry is, is much smaller and not as well um, resourced. Uh, but the, the business is booming, just like it's booming in New York. Um, and there's also a lot of state preemption. So localities are the, the ability for them to regulate and especially for them to get data has been taken away through state law. Um, and that's something that had been happening over like 2015, 2016, 2014. I, I do wish we'd been a little bit more in tune with the importance of localities having information about what happens on their street. Um, because today it's not a great situation for most cities it, throughout the country. They don't have the access to the data like TLC has, and so they can't make policy that will probably benefit their city. Last question for me, pivoting a little bit. <laughs> so you're at the Wagner School. We have a strong contingent of graduate students who listen to this podcast. 
what's the most rewarding thing about public service for you? That's a good question. Um, so I, I'm a real fan of public service. The most rewarding thing is you can make a change um, in the quality of life of people. So I'm not, I came to transportation, but I'm not necessarily a transportation person. Um, but I've been through different, you know, agencies and had legal background. But it always comes down to sort of the people living in the city and something about their daily life is not working out. And you can identify that, you can solve it. And, and there's, a, there's a tremendous, you know, quality of life difference for those individuals. You know, when I worked at DOC, the, the, the risks were higher. It's like, you know, inmates that are getting beaten up and by guards. So maybe you're getting a little justice for them. And that's, you know, it, it's not going to get them out of jail but it's going to be a little bit of justice for them. Um, with the drivers, it's improving their quality of life through better payment and more security. Um, and city government is one of the few places I think you can really have an active role in doing that and making a difference. We'll leave it there. Yeah. Mira Zoshi, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.